Baptism, what an exciting thing to witness in the life of the church, in the life of an individual, right? It's a, a time where uh, I've seen so many people over the years get really excited about that moment, uh, where, which you just witnessed, and yet there's uh, a little bit of nervousness too that comes with it. I think that nervousness comes a little bit from maybe people coming forward and, and, and being in front of others. I think that's a lot of it. But I also think that uh, there's a little bit of uh, nervousness that comes from the recognition of the significance of what is taking place. The nervousness comes from the weight, the glory that comes with holy baptism. All that it signifies in somebody's life, all that it signifies about what God is doing in the world. So I think people come to it with an excitement and a, and a nervousness and thought it was a perfect way to describe the way that we might feel approaching Matthew chapter 5 this morning. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is understood to be this Sermon on the Mount, this unique section of Scripture that, man, we want to we hear what Jesus has to say. We want to hear what Jesus teaches about certain things, so we get excited. But at the same time, there's a, there are, there's a corresponding nervousness. Nervousness as a preacher, and I was like, well, you better not stink. Because no preaching of the Sermon on the Mount should stink, right? So I'm biting my fingernails a little bit like, man, this better not stink. You know, don't mess this up, the sermon that Jesus preaches. You better not jack it up, preacher. Uh, so there's a little nervousness, I think, that comes even as a preacher, but also as a disciple. Maybe even someone here today that's never heard about Jesus as you hear the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, begin to teach and preach in this kind of way for three straight chapters, you might get a little bit nervous. You might get a little uncomfortable and uneasy. Excited, but a little uncomfortable. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. And so we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. What is going on in this Sermon on the Mount? And what will Jesus say to us today? Listen to these words. Grab a Bible if you have one. Grab a Bible. Open it. If you're smartphony, grab your smart... Whatever. Just let's dial in. If you don't have access to those things, I believe the Scriptures will be up on the televisions. For you to see. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Listen to these words. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. And all God's people said, Amen. We're again about to embark on this particular section of Matthew for 27 weeks. I got one amen. <laughs> Everyone's like, can't we just do a four-week series on money? No, no, don't do that. <laughs> 27 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be in this particular section of Scripture all the way to May 31st, according to my preaching calendar right now. May 31st. So uh, 27 parts, Right? 27 parts, and I think as you come to uh, look at each part, I think it's really good for us to look at the whole, right? And to give somewhat of a, a brief introduction, but really important one, so that we don't mess things up along the way. So let's take a look at the, the whole of this sermon, chapters 5 through 7. Uh, let's just look at the title to break it down a little bit. It's called the Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon. And so why is it called that? Well, it's simple. As you encounter the next 27 sections in this sermon, we see that Jesus is teaching. It's a sermon, a sermon of Christ. He's teaching specifically on particular topics, particular matters, particular issues, like anger. He's teaching on lust. He's teaching on divorce. He's teaching on how to treat our enemies, whether real or perceived. He's telling us how to pray. He's teaching on fasting. He's teaching on anxiety. Talk about relevant. He's teaching on possessions. He's teaching on judging others. I don't think Jesus is out of touch with our lives. He's teaching on many other things along the way. So why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Because Jesus is preaching a sermon and he's teaching us about specific things that are relevant to our lives. And so we expect to hear these things. And so as we read and as we hear and as we listen to Jesus teach us, we're hearing astonishing statements along the way. We hear statements that Jesus makes like in chapter 5 verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees were simply the, the, the real religious people who got everything right, who knew all the right answers. So what Jesus is saying is this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the people who get it all right, who understand it perfectly, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, he says this, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if that wasn't overwhelming enough, what does Jesus say in verse 48? You therefore must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so we hear Jesus say astonishing, overwhelming, a little bit scary, uh-oh, things to us. That's too much. That's a height that is too far from me. I will never be able to attain that. That's too much. 
And so even as we hear this, we start to think, well, well, that comes into conflict with what we know other things that Jesus teaches in Matthew, right? Like later on in Matthew, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who feel the burden of never being able to measure up, that can't carry the weight, all of you who feel that, come to me. You know why? Because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So we see that and we think, well, well, then maybe, maybe this Sermon on the Mount, which is, comes before a statement like that, which if we think about it, it comes before the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then it becomes all about grace. So maybe the Sermon on the Mount really isn't applicable to us, right? Maybe these things that he's talking about in reference to anxiety and anger and judging others, and based on just the overwhelming calling and the righteousness that Jesus is talking about, we're supposed to be perfect, like, well, maybe that's just not relevant, like, that's before Jesus died for our sins. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So really, this isn't really relevant or applicable to people like you and me, one might conclude. And someone might look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, that would be crazy to say that it's not applicable. Clearly, it's applicable. But maybe this will be applicable someday when everybody gets to heaven. Maybe someday in the kingdom of God that we heard is at hand, that maybe, maybe that's when we'll be perfect like our Father is perfect. Maybe that's when we're going to pray a particular way. Maybe that's when these things will be relevant and expected of us. So it's, it's not applicable because it's too much in keeping with the gospel. Or maybe it will be applicable someday. And so we wonder, what's going on with all of this? I think we all understand the probable lack of credibility to those kind of uh, arguments about the Sermon on the Mount. It's relevant. Jesus teaches it to his disciples whom he's called to himself. There's something that Jesus wants us to understand. And so I'm going to just say it clearly. That in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus laying out for the disciples... The ethics of the kingdom. This is the righteousness that is required for the kingdom. And what he's doing is he's describing the righteous character and conduct of those in the kingdom. So when I tell you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then I call fishermen to myself, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and they come to me. They've heard and responded to the call. They're following me. This is where they're going. This is what I'm leading them in. This kind of character, this kind of conduct for those who are living in my kingdom in the here and now and in the age to come. That's what Jesus is describing in this sermon. The character and the conduct of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But it's also a sermon on the mount, right? And that could easily be a throwaway phrase for us. Sermon on the mount? Whoop-de-doo. But if you understand redemptive history, reading back into the Old Testament, if you understand about the significance of a teacher sitting in teaching his people on the mountain... And if you understand 
what Matthew has been really telling us, the first four chapters, you know that when a person is giving revelation on the mountain to the people of God, that all of that conjures up memories about Moses. And if you remember, you turn back to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 24, Exodus, I believe, 34. We see that Moses is on the mountain with God. And God is revealing his covenant, his ways, his righteousness to his people, to a Moses that has gone to the mountain. And we know that in Matthew, Matthew's been telling us that Jesus is the new Moses, the new deliverer that doesn't deliver the people of God out of Egypt, but the one that delivers the people of God out of sin, who brings them on a new exodus into freedom from sin. And so when we think about this moment, the teacher, the Messiah, the new Moses on the mountain teaching the people of God, what is he doing? He's acting as a mediator to show and reveal what um, true righteousness is to show and to teach and to bring people as the long-awaited Savior. He's the deliverer. He is the prophet who the people are to listen to, Deuteronomy 18. So again, as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it's important to see that all that Jesus is going to say is yes, it's a description of character and conduct about what righteousness will be in the kingdom of God. But it's more than that. At least it's an expression of this. His very identity as the prophet of God. The one who teaches and reveals. Who brings all truth to bear on humanity and our existence. So if you're wondering about truth, you're wondering about purpose, you're wondering about freedom and deliverance, look to Jesus the one who goes up on the mountain and begins to teach. It's Christ in all that he is that, it, that, that teaches his disciples the righteousness that his kingdom requires. I want you to see that. So as you hear the righteousness that his kingdom requires, I, I want you to hear it from the one that's giving it. Let me explain a little bit more. Again, going back to what Matthew has already revealed, uh, revealed about Jesus. In chapter 5, we see that Jesus is a teacher. He's a prophet. But let us not forget that the teacher is the baptizer of 13 through 8, 17. And also the baptizer, I'm sorry, of 11 through uh, 12. I apologize for that. That's me. John the Baptist says that he baptizes with water for repentance, but one's coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What am, I, what am I trying to say? The one who teaches you in this sermon is the one that baptizes you in his spirit. Let me say it differently. The one that calls you to the character and conduct of the kingdom in this sermon is the one that calls you only on the foundation of the fact that he has provided the spirit of the living God to live and dwell inside of you, to empower such living. He never calls you to something that he does not fully empower in your life. So he's talking to his disciples, 
the disciples whom he is baptizing, who he's putting his spirit in, who've, who've been cleansed in the deepest part of who they are. And they're saying, listen, I'm going to transform your heart, and that's going to transform your life. Right now, and progressively over time, these things, this conduct and this character is going to be increasingly on display in your life until finally and fully in the kingdom of God, this will be your understanding and this will be your experience always. But never think for one minute as you hear these high calls, never think for one minute as you hear the, these, these uh, principles of righteousness Never think that when you hear these commands that are so easily overwhelming to us in our spiritual weakness, never think for one minute that Jesus just calls you to something and thinks you're going to figure it out on your own. Absolutely not. It is nothing more, nothing less than the full provision of the Spirit of God living inside of you. The teacher, remember, is the baptizer. God provides everything we need to live in relationship to him. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's a powerful thing to remember. Guys, that's the gospel of Jesus. What's the good news? Jesus has provided everything to us that he requires from us. So we come to the Sermon on the Mount. We hear Jesus teaching the righteousness his kingdom requires. What do we do with this? Guys, what Jesus teaches, guess what we do? We listen. We listen. For the next 27 weeks, will you listen with me as I listen? Will you open your ears? Let him who has ears, let him hear. Right? Listen. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Hear his word. Hear his teaching. 27 weeks. Let's just shut up and listen. Let's turn our attention to Jesus. Let's get our attention off all the other things that so easily pull us away. Someone told me attention is the number one commodity today. Where's your attention? What's it on? Let's give it to Jesus. Listen. Listen. Let, let him who has ears, let him hear. And maybe as you listen, let that inner voice be praying, like the psalmist does in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may know your truth. Teach me. Teach me. Right? Like the psalmist of Psalm 25. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Maybe as we're listening, that inner voice is praying, teach me. Come to Christ as student, as disciple, as listener. Take some notes for once. Grab a pen. Let's sit at his feet. I don't know about you. I've been talking to Doreen about this a lot. But the deepest crave of my soul is just the simplicity of Christ teaching me. Just, be, just, just being with Christ at his feet. In all this uh, chaos of life, Jesus is just on the mountainside and he sits. And he calls us to sit with him and to listen. There's no greater gift than to just simply sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him teach. So receive that gift. Listen. Slow down. Slow down. Hear Jesus. Hear all that he is. 
and all that his righteousness requires. There's safety there. There's safety there. There's peace there. There's truth there. Sit at his feet. And what does he say? He makes a shocking statement in verse 3. As he opens his mouth, verse 2, and teaches, he says this, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is saying to us today. And that word blessed, you see eight more, really nine, but the ninth one's really an extension of the eighth. So if you're wondering, well, what are we going to be preaching on uh, through the new year? Just the Beatitudes, man. We're going to be in the Beatitudes one by one through New Year's. Eight weeks in this section known as the Beatitudes. What do you mean Beatitudes? You're talking about Beatitudes. Using that church language again. Here's what a Beatitude is. A Beatitude is a pronouncement of spiritual blessing. A beatitude is a pronouncement of spiritual blessing. So over the next eight weeks, Jesus is pronouncing spiritual blessing upon those who hear. Really, upon those whom he's talking about here in these uh, eight slash nine beatitudes. So what do we mean by blessing? And it's interesting to just quickly note that the blessing, even as we head into these uh, uh, 19 weeks on instructions, it's just good to note again, not to beat a dead horse here, but blessing is coming before demand. Don't miss that. Before, like you go back to Exodus 19, before the law, before or Exodus 20, before the, the, the Ten Commandments, what do we hear? I'm the Lord. I've saved you. I've called you out of Egypt. A reminder of grace, a reminder of blessing before there's instruction. What do we have here? The same thing. Blessing first before demand. Blessing before demand. And so we hear the word blessed. What does it mean? Well, some say it just means happy, right? Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy. There's a truth to that as you translate that word, that blessed can be happy, but, but not in the superficial sense that we think about it, like based on a subjective reality. Like we're just happy in the moment. So really, happiness, the way that we typically understand it, reduces blessing down to something that it, that it is not. So it's better to not see blessing. Jesus says, blessed are those. He's not really saying happy are those, although happiness is involved. But there's more to it than that. Carson says, uh, you're approved by God, right? Approved by God are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That blessing just means approval. I like the way Turner says it. He expands on approval. He says, to, to be blessed is to be a happy, there it is, I don't want to lose that, to be a happy recipient of divine approval or favor. So when you're blessed, you're rejoicing in the fact that God has given you divine approval. You hear that? So, that's what blessed means. That 
those that are poor in spirit are those who are happy recipients of divine approval or favor. Approved by God. Blessed are those who are uh, poor in spirit. They're approved by God. And, and, And is there any greater gift to us than that? Is there any greater, is there, I'm sorry, is there a greater pronouncement of blessing for any one of us here than God approves of you? You're accepted by God. You do not sit under his condemnation. He's not angry with you. He's not frustrated with you. God approves of you. Is there a great, find a greater gift in this life or the next, than just the simple truth that you're approved by God. You're approved by God. Let me throw it a different way. Is there a greater weight to bear and a greater weight to carry in this life or the next than the thought or even the idea that God is disapproving of you? That he's frustrated, that he's angry, that you will sit in condemnation under his strong, heavy hand. Jesus is pronouncing blessing. He's pronouncing favor. He's pronouncing grace to people. What people? Look at what he says. He says, the ones who, have, who live in a happy state of divine approval are the poor in spirit. What? The ones who live in a state of happy receipt of divine approval are those who are poor in spirit. That makes absolutely no sense to us whatsoever. That comes face to face with our typical understanding of those we look around in the world. They're the ones who clearly have divine approval. They're the ones whom God is happy with. The poor in spirit, the the spiritually bankrupt. I mean, if you drive around the city or Onondaga County enough, you you will come up to lights where there are people begging. Need help now. I got nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I'm completely dependent upon you giving me something lest I die. Lest my basic needs are not met. I think I see them five to six times a day. Northern suburbs, east side, downtown when I drop my kids up at school or pick them up 17 times a day. Man, that felt good. (laughs) I see them all over the place. And you know what I see every time? Someone who's in need, but in many ways, apart from Christ, guess what I see? You see me. Say, wow, man, they're on tough times. So easy to look at them and say, they're in a tough place. But what Jesus is saying is that those who recognize that spiritually, that's basically where they're at, who humbly recognize that they bring nothing to the table, they're the ones who will be the happy recipients of divine approval. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you come to God as a beggar, admitting you got nothing in your pocket, if you come to him saying, I have absolutely no merit, I've got no works that are worth anything, I've, I've, I've sinned, I've rebelled, 
I'm broke. I'm bankrupt. If that's you, you're the one whom God has said in his sovereign grace will be the recipient of divine favor and approval. Because we would think that it would be someone who did all the right things, who said all the right things, who figured it all out, who's religious, and on the externals looks like they've got it all together. It'd be pastors. They're the ones. Or in this time, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. The spiritual, super-duper holy people, as this Jesus Storybook Bible calls them. They're the ones that are living in divided approval, not me. I don't know that much. I don't do that many great things. I kind of sin a lot, and I'm in trouble. Or maybe the rich, right? Those who have a lot of resources. Ah, they're the ones blessed by God. They've got a nice car. They got a nice house. They got it together. Their 401k has gone up 25%. They got a pool. They live in a nice neighborhood. Their kids go to a nice school. Man, their family just, they just seem to be really healthy people, right? They're just living the dream. They must be living in divine approval. Jesus says, nope. You can't measure it that way. Doesn't mean anything. There must be the ones, right? He's saying those that are begging, those who have empty pockets, those who have no purchasing power spiritually, those that have nothing going for them, those who understand their rebellious, idolatrous state, those people that come before God weeping, beating the chest, falling on their knees before him, said, I've got absolutely nothing. I'm deserving of judgment. I have no reason for you to accept me before God. Jesus says, you're the ones that receive divine approval. Because you understand how holiness holiness is. And you understand how sinfully depraved you really are. And you're in a perfect place because God's word says a broken spirit and a contrite heart he will not despise. I don't want your offerings. A broken spirit and a contrite heart he will not despise. This shocks us. This shocks us. And yet it amazes us, doesn't it? It amazes us. It blows us away. It's why we're here this morning, isn't it? Isn't that why we're here? To celebrate this kind of grace for these kind of people? Wasn't it us at one point that came face to face with the reality that we're just on the corner with a cardboard sign saying, I got nothing and I'm fully dependent upon Jesus for divine approval. I need God to do it or I'm dead meat. Isn't that us? Isn't that why we sing? Isn't that why we pray? The celebration of unmerited favor and grace for people like you and me that did not deserve it. Is that not? What we preach and why we preach today, this amazes us. It blows us away that those who are poor in spirit, it's those that are blessed. Because even though they are spiritually bankrupt in this moment, in this life, here's the reality. When they come face to face with me and they come uh, begging to me, I give them all of who I am and they inherit the very kingdom of heaven. Something that no, no success in this life, no money in anybody's bank account, no retirement account, no success and accomplishment can ever purchase for you. It's only a gift to be received by faith. 
to those who recognize that they are bankrupt. What does Jesus say in the beginning of this sermon? He says this, there's eternal blessing for those who are spiritually bankrupt. There's eternal blessing to those who are spiritually bankrupt. Theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. What an inheritance pronounced upon those who are bankrupt spiritually. What an awesome thing. Isn't that what really we see in baptism today? Isn't it just three people that said, I got nothing. I need Jesus. His death, His resurrection. It's the only hope for me to have divine approval. Because on my own, I got nothing. All my righteousness is filthy rags. And they come and they hear about Christ and all that He is and all that He's done. And they hear about the fact that Jesus, through union with Him, grants to these people, these three, His righteousness. A gift. Because of your faith in me, your union to me, in my death and resurrection, even though you were spiritually bankrupt, now, in Christ, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Is that really what we put on display here today? Because some of us might have thought that maybe they just figured it all out finally. They said the right things. They did the right things. They went to the class. They wore a renovation church t-shirt. Well, that was just me this morning. Right? No. That's what we see here. That those who are spiritually bankrupt are those who are eternally blessed. And all of that comes from Christ. All of that comes because of Christ. But let's not forget that really, that is Christ. The blessing. Their new identity, their new standing is because of their union with Christ. You get me. You get me. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, really, the call as we approach this sermon is to listen to the teacher, isn't it? And receive from the blesser. Receive from the blesser. What am I supposed to do in response to this? Listen. Listen to the teacher. What does the teacher say? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah? So now what? You're going to receive blessing from the blesser. Receive. How do you receive? By placing your faith, hope, and trust in Christ alone. For the forgiveness of sins and for the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you in Jesus Christ. Namely, eternal life. Otherwise known as the kingdom of heaven. So trust in Christ today. If you've never heard of this before, maybe you've got a lot more to learn. That's okay. We start listening. Disciples, they're, they're listeners now. We're going to listen. We're going to grow in you over time. But if you're here today and you've never heard about the life-changing message that Jesus Christ has calling us to his righteousness and providing that very righteousness... And you just, you just need to receive that today. You didn't know that God was a benevolent God that's pouring out blessing on people that don't deserve it. Maybe you didn't know that, that, that 
that, that you, as a weak, bankrupt person, are a perfect recipient for all that God has in the kingdom, of, in his kingdom. But today you've heard it because you've listened. And so as you've heard it, trust it. Trust in it alone. Trust in Christ alone. Embrace him by faith. And if you have done that for the first time today, please tell me. I want to know. If you need, you've got questions, ask me after the service today. Don't leave today without knowing where to get divine approval. Jesus. And, and if you're trusting in it, don't leave without being assured that you have it. Because we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what's around the corner. But we do know what God's word says today. That blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We do know who's teaching us. That's Jesus. So listen. Trust and receive. Because it's in Him and in Him alone that there is eternal blessing for the spiritually bankrupt. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the promises. We thank you that you teach us and we listen. We pray that your spirit would quicken within us faith and hope and trust in Christ and joy. We pray that those who were in darkness would be in light. Those who were dead in sin would be resurrected to new life. Those who feel cursed would know the joy of blessing. Oh God, be at work even now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.